You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And uh, we are in a series where we are looking at how God continually surprises us with grace. In fact, that's the, been the title of the, of the Advent series that we're looking at these five Sundays leading up to Christmas Eve after Thanksgiving. And the, the, we titled it Surprising Grace. And we've looked at this genealogy of Jesus from Matthew chapter 1 because in that genealogy, the surprising aspect of the genealogy is that it includes, as Matthew writes this genealogy, it includes um, five women. Now, everybody in the genealogy is a recipient of grace. Every single one of them has a story, and, but specifically, there are five women that, that Matthew includes, including Jesus' mother, Mary. All of them are the recipients of God's unmerited favor and God's blessing, His surprising grace. And in, and in many ways, in, in every way, that's what Christmas is really all about. See, before, in Matthew's gospel, I mean, before you get to the manger, before you get to the arrival of Jesus, Matthew prepares us for the arrival of Jesus. I mean, before you ever hear about uh, Mary's, before you ever hear Mary's name, before you ever hear about Joseph, before you ever hear about all the events that take place in their life and then lead them to Bethlehem and Jesus being born in a manger, Matthew is preparing us with a genealogy. And this genealogy that at every turn we, we stop and we think, man, I wonder why Matthew would include this. It's so that when we get to the manger and we ask the question, well, why the manger? I mean, why this way? Of all the ways that God could come and redeem humanity to to come and display His grace, to come and offer His mercy, to come prepare the way for the forgiveness of sins, why the manger? Why, Why does the King of all creation have to come and be a part of creation and come in the most vulnerable of ways. Why? Well, the answer is, is that Jesus comes to save us. He comes to redeem us. He comes to be the sacrifice for our sin. And, and in doing all of that, Jesus comes and unites himself with us fully. That's a surprising grace. He, he doesn't save us from the sidelines. He, he doesn't save us from out there. He saves us from right in the middle of where we are. And this genealogy reminds us that as Jesus comes and unites with humanity, He unites with all the darkness and the sin and the shame that humanity is. And so listen to Matthew's genealogy. I'm just going to read the first six verses, and that brings us to the, the fourth of these women that we have been looking at. He begins this way, and it it is the normal, natural way you would think he would begin. He's writing to a Jewish audience. Jesus is the king, the promised Messiah to come, and he begins the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, 
the son of Abraham. He, he right there has told us, he, he's the son of the two most important people, the people that have, gotten, that have been in eternal covenant with God, an eternal covenant with Abraham, God made, and an eternal covenant with David, God has made. And right there, if the genealogy just stopped there and we went straight to Mary, you would think, man, this is the most impressive genealogy that there ever was. David and Abraham, I mean, if you were going to pick your genealogy, if you were going to write it, if, if you were going to say, man, I, this, those are the people you want in your genealogy. Then he goes on this way. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Well, so far, so good. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Well, that's the first name that, that shocks us awake as we read this. If you remember seven, uh, several weeks ago, we talked about Tamar. She is the daughter-in-law of Judah, Perez, and Zerah. We would read that and hear Tamar, and we would go, Oh, this is, these are the children that were born out of the incest and the sin of Judah. Well, from there, and Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Amenadab, and Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Matthew, you did it again. You dropped another scandal right in the middle of this royal genealogy, and that's Rahab. She was the prostitute that lived in Jericho, who became a part of God's people, married a man named Salmon, and had a, had a son named Boaz. Well, and then Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. And you think, well, she's not quite as scandalous, and yet she's a Moabite. She's a foreigner. She, she's a peasant. She's the poorest of poor. She was in the most dire of all situations. Why did we have to bring Ruth up? And Obed, by, uh, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. Yeah, there we are. We're back on track. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And this brings us to the fourth woman in Jesus' genealogy. Matthew refers to her as the wife of Uriah. And we know her from the Old Testament as Bathsheba. The stories of each of these women, they're, they're familiar to us. We've heard them here and there, uh, but they're absolutely shocking when we find them embedded in this grand genealogy, part of this grand narrative of who Jesus is and where he's come from. See, the reality is, is that what Matthew is arguing is that God's grace goes all the way to the ends and to the extent of man's depravity, of man's error, of man's sin and man's need. That despite all of man's depravity and, and man's departure from what God had intended, God's grace always breaks through. And what he does is he accomplishes his, his, his uh, purposes for his people. He's going to bring them peace. He brings them blessing. And this morning we are going to see that on top of peace and blessing, what God comes 
he delivers a message of his love. So that's the theme for the Advent series. And maybe we would sum it up this way, you know, sin is no match for God's grace, or, or, or grace is greater than all our sin. That's what Matthew's preparing us for. So if you're in 2 Samuel, that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to look at the story of David and Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, this is how it starts. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So what you need to know is, is that up to this point, this has been, um, this has really been uh, a story, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, um, all one book in the Old Testament, has been telling the story about the rise of David to king, where he moves from being the, the last son of Jesse, the one tending the fields and the sheep, and he's uh, Samuel comes and he gets anointed by God to be the one who's going to be the king over Israel. He is discussed as being the one who's a man after God's own heart. And in just a few chapters before this, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God comes to David and makes an eternal covenant with David. David, it is through you that the Messiah is going to come. It is through you that the king who will reign on your throne will come. And that king will have a, have a kingdom. He will have a reign. He will sit on the throne forever. There will be no end, David, to his reign. It's a covenant. It's a promise to David. Well, David's at, at the height, the few chapters before this, he has been a king who has led his people to victory and to war, and he has shown kindness, and he has exercised grace, and, and we've seen all the very best things about David. And yet when we get to chapter 11, the wheels begin to come off. You see, it was the time that kings went to war, and it was the time that Israel was going to go to war, and this spring was like all of the other springs. And yet David, at the height of his career, decides, you know what, I'll send Joab and I'll send Israel. Life's been hard. I need a break, and I'll, I'll stay back in Jerusalem. And so in verse 2 it says, And it happened late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and then he saw from a roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is, this, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she'd been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. David's where he shouldn't have been. He is on the roof. He looks out over the rooftop and sees Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, Uriah the, one of the mighty men of David, one of David's 
best of friends, one of David's most trusted confidants. A man who had pledged to give his life for David. And here David, where he wasn't supposed to be, looks out and takes from Uriah literally his life. See, you think about this. This is the king that God chose. This is the man after God's own heart. In the warning of the text, I mean, the warning is as, as, as Matthew includes it in the genealogy, and then the warning from 2 Samuel chapter 11 is the text. I mean, listen, it reaches far beyond King David, it reaches to everyone who professes to be a child of God. Everyone who professes to be a servant of Jesus. How suddenly and fatally David's going to fall. There's a line from Robert Robert Robinson's hymn, Come thou found of every blessing. And it's a line that ought to scare us. You know it. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I think Robinson understood it. He was converted under George Whitfield's ministry. Uh, Whitfield was preaching in 1752. Robinson hears him preach. He trusts Christ as his Savior. He later becomes a Baptist pastor in uh, Cambridge, and yet towards the end of his life, he, he writes by his own admission that he'd given way to frivolous habits, is the way he calls it. There's also the story he tells about one day during this period towards the end of his life, he was traveling by stagecoach and there was another person that was in the stagecoach with him. It was a lady, she was a total stranger, she didn't know who he was, he didn't know who she was. And she was going over some hymns and, and she was talking out loud and then began to talking to him and then she came to Come Thou Fount and she began to tell him, what a blessing this hymn has been to me. Oh, I've read it and I've sung it and I've meditated on it. And she keeps going on and on and on. Well, at this time, Robinson, he becomes so agitated, he bursts out, he says, Madam, listen, I am the poor, unhappy man who comprised that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. Seems as though Robinson knew the same trajectory of David. And so we don't want to just skip past these verses. We don't want to just read these verses of David's fall and then somehow say, well, listen, yes, but that was the Old Testament and times are different, man, and, and this, is the, this is New Testament and this is Christianity and we're a part of the church. And, and part of me would say, well, what difference does that make? And what immunity does it give you? See, if you begin and somehow in your heart say, well, I'm, but man, I would never, I would never do that, then and the reality is you've already taken the first step in your fall. See, we should never be surprised. If we learn anything from David's story, we should never be surprised at the things that you're capable of. The only safe ground is 
what Robinson seems to pray in the midst of the hymn, O to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. You can go from hero to zero in an afternoon. Well, the story goes on in chapter 11, verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. He's just going to make some small talk and some chit-chat. And David's smooth, isn't he? Then David said to Uriah, well, go down to your house and wash your feet and Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him uh, a present from the king. But, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, hey, have, you come from a, uh, from, have you not come from a journey? Why do you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and... Judah dwell in booths. My lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. See, David's plan was to call Uriah back from the battlefield to uh, strike up some friendly conversation, to get a report on the war, and then to reward Uriah with, hey, listen, go have a couple of nights in your home. Go rest before you head off to the battlefield. Go and spend the night with your wife. David desires to cover up what it is that he'd done. You notice this. Uriah is given an order by his king. Uriah is told by David, the king, go and do this. Go, go to your home and and, and eat and, with your wife and lie with her and, and, and go and do this. And yet Uriah, the Hittite, is a more faithful Israelite than David is proving to be here. He disobeys the command of his king because he does not want to dishonor the God of his king. It's a very poignant thing in the text that the reader, that the author wants the reader to notice. So he goes on and it says this, then David said to Uriah, if at first you don't succeed, you try again. And so he said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but did not go down to his house. Uriah uh, gets plowed with drinks by David, and yet still remains faithful to God. Well, if you don't succeed, you try again, and if you don't succeed, well, then you try again. So in the morning, verse 14, David wrote a letter to Joab. He sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront 
of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. Stop right there for a second. You realize what David's done. He's written a death sentence for Uriah and then handed that death sentence to Uriah, probably sealed with his king's seal, so Uriah would have known not to open it. He sends it, gets it to Joab. Joab opens it, and I imagine Joab is struck for a moment, trying to understand what in the world it is that he's reading. You know what's interesting is that all through this account, the scene with David and Bathsheba, the scene with David and Uriah, the scene here with David and Joab communicating through this letter, we aren't told anyone else's perspective except for David's. You, you, you don't hear anything about what Bathsheba's thinking or not thinking. And is she on that roof because she knows the king's at home? She knows that where she bays, the king will see her. We, we don't know if she baited him or didn't bait him. And the text doesn't seem to care. All the responsibility here falls to David. We don't exactly know why Uriah doesn't go to his home. Maybe he gets a sense, hey, something's wrong in Jerusalem. Something's wrong here. The place for me to be is outside the door of the king. If something's wrong, that's where I ought to be. But we don't know any of that. All we're told is the perspective of David. All that we're following in this narrative is one act after another of David, God's king. And here he sends Uriah to Joab with his death sentence, send him to the front of the fighting and then have the men draw back. Well, Joab knew that if Uriah was there, I'm imagining Joab knew that if Uriah was there, the men hung back, Joab would step back with him. So he sends not just Uriah to his death, but many men to his death. What better way to cover up the death of one than with the death of many? So in verse 19, Joab's going to send David a messenger back to David, and he instructed the messenger, when you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises because of all the men that had died, and he says to you, why, why did you go so near the city to fight? Do you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of uh, 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 Jerry... Uh, Jerobeth, uh, that guy. And it's broken up in my Bible. It makes it harder. So, and then, did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why do you go so near the wall? And then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. 
Any trouble that you sense that you're about to be in from the king, you end with, and Uriah the Hittite is dead also. In verse 22, so the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gave an advantage over us, came out against us in the field, and we drove them back to the entrance of the gate, and then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of your king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Verse 25, David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Well, don't let this matter trouble you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And and encourage him. It's almost painful to read. Verse 25, painful to read the place that David is in when he would say those words after all that, as a reader, we would have encountered about the great king, David. In fact, when we come back after the new year, we'll begin in January a series. We're going to study the life of David together the rise and the the fall and the redemption of this man who is called the man after God's own heart. But here we catch David in the lowest time, in the lowest place. And it's interesting that as Matthew would include uh, David in the genealogy, and rightly so, I mean, David is the one through whom the king would come, the the eternal king, the one who would sit on David's throne for everlasting and everlasting. That Matthew takes this one episode in David's life and attaches it to the genealogy. David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. We'll get to there in just a moment because I do want to talk about it. But you know what's interesting? Matthew could have included a lot of things. David was the father of Solomon. You remember David. The one that slew Goliath, the champion. the, 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 The young shepherd boy who went out to the field and slayed a giant. But that's not the David he refers to. Notice in verse 26, as 2 Samuel 11 ends the account, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, it was probably seven days, find that number out in 2 Samuel 12. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You know, it's interesting, as you read the account, one of the things you're struck by is that God seems to be silent throughout chapter 11. David goes from a hero to zero in an afternoon, and things just get worse and worse as he keeps covering up and covering up. 
And David finally thinks here at the end, well, Uriah's dead. I can bring Bathsheba into my house. I'll marry her, make an honest woman of her. And all the while, God is silent. And yet, we find at the end of this that God had seen everything. And he was displeased. Well, we won't have time to get into to chapter 12, but we will when we study the life of David. Nathan will come. He will tell David a parable about a, about a dirty, rotten man who takes the sheep of poor people. And, and David's anger against that man, Nathan will turn upon him and say, you know what, you're, you're that man, David. He'll bring David to a place of conviction and ultimately repentance. David will write Psalm 51 as we see his prayer journal in the midst of this time as he pours his heart out in repentance to God. He's been stabbed awake by the God he serves. Brought back to sanity by the God who loves him. What we'll find is that he's brought from the grip of the enemy, the, the very real enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour, and the enemy of himself. He's brought from the grip of the enemy to the grip of grace. You know, as we go back to the genealogy, we said, you know, David's everything you'd want in a family tree. I mean, he's a hero. He's a warrior. He's, a, he's, a, he's an outlaw. During the time of, of Saul's reign, he's like, you know, it's like Robin Hood. He's, and, he, and ultimately, he becomes king. But in the genealogy, what Matthew does is reminds us something very specific about this, this king, this David. See, after the first child dies with Bathsheba, God blessed them with another son named Solomon. And the family tree will continue through Solomon and goes all the way to Jesus. But we can't help but notice that how Bathsheba is referred to. She's referred to as the wife of Uriah. But Solomon's born to David. He's born to David uh, while Bathsheba is his wife. Why would, why would he refer to her then as the wife of Uriah? It's an ever reminder that she first belonged to someone else. See, it's not a dig on Bathsheba. You say, oh, Bathsheba's so bad, she doesn't even get named. You know what? It has nothing to do with Bathsheba. It has everything to do with David. See, Bathsheba is the reminder of sin in David's life, but it is also the reminder of God's grace. It's interesting, Bathsheba, her name means a daughter of oath or daughter of covenant. And like we said in 2 Samuel 7, even before this event, God had made an oath. He'd made a covenant with David. He promised to make his name great among all the nations, to, to make him famous. And you know what? There are two famous scenes, two names that will always be associated with David, Goliath and Bathsheba, forever linked with them. Two names that create the memories of David as we think about him, but they couldn't be any more different. Goliath, he was ugly, he was cruel. He, 
was the enemy. He was a giant. Bathsheba, she was beautiful, the text says. A gentle woman. Goliath, he, he's going to meet David when David's young and unknown and untested and has nothing to bring to the, to the man except his faith in God. Bathsheba will meet with David when he's mature, well-known, thoroughly tested, tried, and the king of all he surveys. You know, it's interesting. In the meeting with Goliath, David emerges triumphant. In the meeting with Bathsheba, David emerges defeated. You know, the author in first, 2 Samuel 11 begins, at the time when kings go to war, David stayed home. The reality is David ended up in a bigger war than he could have ever imagined. And Matthew is saying here that, listen, I don't know what you think about genealogies, and I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of David, but the very best guy in the entire genealogy, I mean, you've got Abraham and you've got David, I mean, but, but David, I mean, he's a man's man, he's the hero. And the very best guy you could ever want in your genealogy has done something far worse than any of these women we've been shaking our head at in the family tree. So I'll ask again, why does Matthew include Bathsheba in the genealogy of Jesus and why is she referred to as the wife of Uriah? And I think it is to show us that grace is greater than all of our sin. Grace comes and says, you know what the reality is? It doesn't matter what you have done. There is a grace of God that can come upon you there is a grace of God that can arrest you. There is a grace of God that can so surprise you and overwhelm you. And it's because of what the greater son of David will do. David does not get what he deserves in the Samuel account. He receives the grace of God. And the line continues. Listen, it's not based upon your merit. It's not based upon your morality. It's not based upon your achievements. It's, it's not even based upon how much you despair over yourself. It does mean coming to God and agreeing with Him about your sin. It does mean coming to God and bowing before Him and saying, I have ruined everything. I can not save myself. That's when the grace of God, because of His Son Jesus, is known by you. The wife of Uriah is included. It's, it's because this story is for anybody that's ever felt they've messed up so bad they're beyond hope. It's for anybody that felt like they've made so many mistakes, God could never use them. Anybody that's ever felt that they've tried and tried and tried, but they somehow can't move past their sin. See, I think that's what Matthew's point is. I think that's why Matthew includes Bathsheba, and I think that's why Matthew includes Bathsheba in the way that he does, that nobody deserves to be in Jesus' family. Not Tamar, not Rahab, not Ruth, not even David. 
showing us everybody in his family tree are equals. Nobody on the list deserves to be there. But because of the grace of God, they're included. And God's grace is greater than all our sin. You know, I'll make one last note and try not to spoil anything that comes up in the David series, but as you think about God continuing this line to Jesus and fulfilling the covenant that he had with David, that he would have a son and then a son and a son, and ultimately the greater son would sit on the throne forever. Why would God choose to bring the Messiah through Bathsheba? I mean, with all the stain and all the scandal and all the shame and all the sin involved, why Bathsheba? Why not one of other, David's other wives? Because God will come and say, listen, it's through Bathsheba that you'll have a son, and he, he'll be the one. Then God tells him to go tell that, and he goes to Bathsheba and says, we're going to have another son. This one. This will be the one. You know what they name him? They end up naming him the son Solomon. You know what Solomon means? Peace. David comes to a place in his life, he has received the forgiveness of God, he has known the grace of God. And when Solomon finally comes, this one that God promised, he's able to announce through Solomon's name, peace. Peace. He is not at war with God anymore. But you know, it's interesting, God doesn't stop there. Because God says, I want you to know more than that. And so he's going to send Nathan to David. Nathan, not only is, his son gonna, is your son going to be named Solomon, but God wants you also to call him Jedidiah. You know what Jedidiah means? Loved by God. You're, you're my beloved. You're, you're loved. You, you not only have peace with me, but I love you. You are loved. You see, that's what Christmas is all about. It reminds us, listen, the grace is greater than all our sin. The grace of God is available to everyone, including you, that you can be at peace with God, but not just at peace. You can know His love. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what it is that you've done, that the grace of God through His Son, Jesus, has come to you. So if you would.